Let me ask you to turn in your Bible, please, to the Gospel of Mark, chapter 16. Mark, chapter 16. Thank you to our worship team this morning for leading us in that musical time of worship. This is now the time that we ordinarily open the Bible and look to understand what is written in it. The reason we do that is because we believe that God inspired the Bible, that the Bible is His Word, that He gave it to us so that we might learn about Him, and that we might learn about ourselves, and that we might learn about how we are to live before Him. And what we usually do is take a passage of Scripture, we read it, we explain it, we look to apply it to our lives, and usually we are working through a book of the Bible and kind of go from beginning to end as we just work our way through a book. Right now we're in the Old Testament book of Judges, and we'll be back there next week in Judges chapter 4. But today we're going to go back to the New Testament, and we're going to look at a passage in the Gospel of Mark that explains why we celebrate Easter. Even though Jesus had taught his disciples that he would be put to death, he also taught them that he would be raised from the dead. But their response to that news was much like their response to much of what Jesus taught. They didn't understand what he was saying to them. And so on the third day after Jesus was crucified, some women went to the tomb and were surprised to find it empty. And it's an empty tomb that still surprises people today. Surprises some to disbelief. Surprises others to confusion. It surprises others to curiosity. But it surprises others and many others to faith. And so today, as we think more carefully about the resurrection of Jesus, I want to ask and answer three questions. First, what happened on the first Easter Sunday? Second, how do we know that the resurrection actually happened? How can we believe that it, it's true? Then third, why is the resurrection necessary for the Christian faith? Let's look at our passage of Scripture again. If you don't have a Bible open, let me encourage you to open one because we're not only going to read the passage, but we're going to be, have opportunities to look back at the text. And it's a good way to familiarize ourselves with the Bible, but also an opportunity for you to keep me in check to make sure that what I'm actually saying is coming from the Word and not giving you my own opinion. So Mark chapter 16, if you're using one of the few Bibles, it's on page 853, beginning in verse 1, Mark 16, verse 1. When the Sabbath was passed, Mary Magdalene, Mary the mother of James and Salome, bought spices so that they might go and anoint him. And very early on the first day of the week, when the sun had risen, they went to the tomb. And they were saying to one another, who will roll away the stone for us from the entrance of the tomb? And looking up, they saw that the stone had been rolled back. It was very large. And entering the tomb, they saw a young man sitting on the right side, dressed in a white robe, and they were alarmed. And he said to them, Do not be alarmed. You seek Jesus of Nazareth, who was crucified. He is risen. He is not here. See the place where they laid him. But go, tell his disciples and Peter that he is going before you to Galilee. There you will see him, just as he told you. And they went out and fled from the tomb. For trembling and astonishment had seized them, and they said nothing to anyone, for they were afraid. 
So first, let's consider the first question. What happened on Easter Sunday? What happened on Easter Sunday? Let's work through the text to see what transpired at the tomb early on that Sunday morning. We see first in verses 1 through 3 that the women made their way to the tomb. Now, what was their purpose for going to the tomb? Well, their intention was to go and to anoint Jesus' body with aromatic oils. Remember that Jesus had been hastily entombed late Friday afternoon after his crucifixion. Deuteronomy chapter 21, verse 23 tells us that the body of a person who had been hung on a tree needed to be buried before sundown because if it didn't, it would bring a curse upon the land. Furthermore, this was Friday evening. The next day at, sun, at sundown, the, the next day would be started at sundown, would be the Sabbath day. And so on the Sabbath, no work could be done. And so they needed, it was really urgent to get Jesus' body in the tomb because work could not be done on the Sabbath. Because of the hastiness of the burial, the women were not able to anoint Jesus' body with these spices and oils. And since they were forbidden to do that work on the Sabbath day, they waited until daybreak on Sunday morning, the first day of the week, to make their way to the tomb and to apply these spices and oils. Anointing the body in Jewish culture was an act of honor and devotion to the deceased. Now, this wasn't like embalming, and, and you're probably familiar from history from Egypt, right, where they embalmed bodies with the intention of preserving those bodies. That, the, the application of oils and spices was not meant to preserve the body. Instead, it was meant to give a, a fragrance that would offset the stench of decomposition. It was a way for the women to show an act of, of, of honor, an act of devotion to the body, a, a way of respecting the memory of Jesus, a way of dignifying his body. One last sign of showing their true love and devotion for him and all that he had done for them and for their disciples. But as the women go to the tomb, they note a potential problem, that is gaining access to the tomb. The women had witnessed Jesus' burial, so they knew the, the location of the tomb, and they had seen the stone rolled in front of the tomb to block access to the body. The stone is important because it kept out wild animals that were looking for something to devour, devouring the corpse in this case. It also kept away grave robbers who were looking to, to uh, steal anything that would have been of value that were placed with the deceased. Well, this stone had been rolled in front of the entrance, and the fact that it was rolled indicates that it was circular. Most tomb entrances at this time were covered by rectangular stones, but the very wealthy had circular stones that could be more easily rolled into place. The stone would have been set on a track. It would have been grooved out. The track would have been grooved out so that the, the stone could have been rolled, and they, it was on a bit of an incline so that the, the power of gravity helped to facilitate the rolling of the stone. That would be the, the main source of power, bringing it to set in place. And although moving the stone would not be impossible, it would be quite difficult. And the three women recognized that they were incapable of rolling back the stone themselves. They even asked in, in verse 3, who's going to move the stone for us because it was very large. But once they arrived at the tomb, the women made two discoveries. They made two discoveries at the tomb. First, they discovered that the stone had already been rolled away in verse 4. And the fact that the women did not move the stone should arouse a sense of surprise or suspicion about what happened there. Again, it was not impossible to roll back the stone, but certainly with no other people at the tomb, it would have been almost, it would have been exceedingly difficult. 
There would have been nobody else there that early in the morning to help them to try to move the stone. There certainly would not have been his disciples who were coming at that time to try to roll the stone. There was nobody there that was going to be able to help them. And so they, they discovered that this is a bit of a surprise. The stone had already been rolled away. In fact, the only explanation that can be given, given the evidence that we have here, is that it must have rolled away supernaturally. Something must have happened supernaturally to move the stone. And in fact, Jesus' resurrection is a miracle. It is out of the ordinary. It is extraordinary. God had acted supernaturally, not just to move back the stone, but to raise his son from the dead. The second thing that the women discovered at the tomb was that there was an angel inside. Mark notes the presence in verse 5 of a young man. Now, that young man is clearly not an ordinary man, based upon how he's dressed and what he says. But even the other Gospels, Matthew and John, refer to him not as a young man, but as an angel. And Luke indicates that he had a glorious appearance that would befit an angel, what we would think about, or what what the Bible describes an angel would be like in their appearance. Well, the angel's presence we see in verse 5 alarmed the women. And that word alarm indicates both a sense of wonder, but also a sense of fear. A sense of astonishment and surprise, but also a sense of distress. They were amazed at what they saw. But that amazement was not, in this case, positive. It's not like when you go to, if you ever enter into a surprise birthday party, if ever somebody's ever thrown you a surprise birthday party, right? And you walk in and you're surprised. That's a positive surprise. You're, you may be shocked or startled in the moment, but you're happy that the people have gathered to celebrate your birthday. This is not a positive surprise. They are feared. They are terrified. In fact, it's this same word that Mark uses back in chapter 14 to describe Jesus' distress in the Garden of Gethsemane. It says that he began to be greatly distressed and troubled. Greatly distressed, greatly amazed, greatly astonished at the things that he was about to endure as the cross lay before him. Well, the angel speaks to the women in their fear, in their surprise. And he says two things to them. Notice in verse 6 that he first says, do not be alarmed. He sought to alleviate their fears and reassure them. See, the angel was not there to terrify them or to bring them terrible news. He was God's messenger. He was the one that God sent, the messenger that God sent to tell them good news. Secondly, the angel announced Jesus' resurrection. He says in the second part of verse 6, You seek Jesus of Nazareth who was crucified. He is risen. He is not here. See the place where they laid him. So the angel here first identifies the one who has been raised. He identified that the risen Jesus was the same Jesus that had been crucified. The risen Jesus is the crucified Jesus. You seek Jesus of Nazareth who was crucified. He is risen. So there ought to be no case here of mistaken identity. The Jesus who was raised from the dead was the same Jesus who was crucified. Now, back in chapter 15, verses 40 and 41, we Mark notes that the women had been at the crucifixion. They had seen Jesus crucified. He also notes in verse 47 of that chapter that they had seen him buried. So the Jesus that they believed to be dead, the one that they saw with their own eyes who died on the cross, the one who they saw being placed into the tomb, is now risen. He is now alive. 
The angel also says that Jesus had been raised from the dead. Now, if you notice the translation there in verse 6, it says that he has risen. But the more literal translation is to use the passive voice. He has been raised. And why that's significant is because in the Bible, we refer to this as what's called the divine passive. It's the passive voice. Something was done to Jesus. And typically, when we don't know who is doing the work, that implies that God is the one who's done the work. So in this case, Jesus has been raised by whom? By God. God is the one who raised his son from the dead. God is the one who brought his son back to life. God is the actor in the divine drama. All that God does from the beginning of time to the end of time is the work of God. God is the actor. He is the one who is bringing about salvation. He is the one who sent his son to die on the cross. He is now the one who has raised his son from the dead. So the resurrection of Jesus is supernatural. It did not come by a natural occurrence or ordinary human power. Jesus didn't just come to, right? God raised him from the dead. God intervened in history to do something absolutely extraordinary. In fact, in Peter's sermon at Pentecost, at Acts chapter 2, verses 23 and 24, he gives credit for the resurrection to God the Father. He says, this Jesus delivered up according to the definite plan and foreknowledge of God, you crucified and killed by the hands of lawless men. But God raised him up, loosing the pangs of death, because it was not possible for him to be held by it. Then the angel offered the women evidence of the resurrection. The tomb is empty. He says, he is not here. See the place where they laid him. The tomb was empty. The body of Jesus was missing. Now we need to keep in mind here that the empty tomb is evidence of God's, of Jesus' resurrection. It is evidence of Jesus' resurrection. But it is not conclusive proof. Now other explanations could be offered and have been offered historically for why the tomb was empty. But how do we know that the resurrection is the correct explanation For the empty tomb. How do we know that that is the right interpretation of that evidence? How do we know that other explanations are wrong? And the answer is, it is by divine revelation. God revealed the truth about what happened to Jesus. How did he reveal it? Through the words of this messenger. See, the the messenger is making the interpretation of the evidence crystal clear. The angel says, he is not here. Why? He has risen. He has been raised from the dead. In other words, the angel is God's messenger to reveal, to give the correct explanation, the correct understanding for why the tomb is empty. The empty tomb provides the evidence for the resurrection, but it is the angel's announcement that makes the interpretation of the empty tomb crystal clear. The angel's announcement to the women of the resurrection of Jesus was then what we call gospel, right? We use that word a lot, gospel. It just simply means good news. What the angel tells the women here is gospel. It is good news. And it's good news in the ultimate sense. Now, for us who are accustomed to hearing this good news, I'm sure that most of you came in this morning super excited at Easter Sunday, right? This is the Super Bowl of the Christian year, right? Even though we, we do, like as Adam said, we do the same thing every week. The reason why the church meets weekly is because we celebrate the resurrection of the dead, the resurrection of Christ from the dead. 
But this is the Super Bowl. So we were excited, probably had the playlist on, singing those songs of praise this morning. It's joyful, it's jubilant. And so we look at the response of the women here, and we might be surprised at their response. Because how did they respond? Well, the women fled from the empty tomb in terror. Verse 8, And they went out, and they fled from the tomb, for trembling and astonishment had seized them, and they said nothing to anyone, for they were afraid. Mark is emphasizing here the fear of the women. He uses six descriptive words and phrases to communicate the terror that they sense at the angel's announcement. Their fear demonstrates the supernatural dimension to what they had just witnessed. The miraculous power of God did something so extraordinary, so unbelievable, that their only response here was terror and fright. God had entered into history and had done something absolutely unexpected. He had raised Jesus from the dead. And that display of power alone can be absolutely terrifying. In fact, in the Bible, extraordinary displays of God's power usually lead witnesses to tremble at the witnessing that power. The women's fear then confirms the reliability of the resurrection. Well, their fear was so great that they were dumbstruck. The angel commanded the women to go and to tell the disciples, the other disciples and Peter, about the good news of the resurrection. Right in verse 7, he says, Go and tell the, his disciples and Peter that he is going before you to Galilee. But they remained silent, at least initially. They were so paralyzed by fear that in the moment they, they temporarily said nothing to anyone. And so that's what happened. That's Mark's record of what happened on that Easter Sunday. So how do we know that the resurrection actually happened? Let's consider our second question. How do we know the resurrection actually happened? From the earliest moments when the empty tomb was discovered, the reality of Jesus' resurrection has been challenged. The overriding concern lies with the miraculous nature of the resurrection. There are people that just can't come to believe that miracles happen, that God does miraculous things, that God works in supernatural ways in our world. And think about it. Have you ever seen someone come back to life? It doesn't ordinarily happen. I've been to a number of funerals in my life, and in every case, I've seen with the bodies present, remaining in the coffin. I've been to a few where they've been actually put into the, the grave, into the ground. And they've always remained dead. Dead people don't ordinarily come back to life. If such a thing happens, it is extraordinary. It is out of the ordinary. Right? Because it defies the normal pattern of how we, we live our lives. When we die, we die. And so Jesus' opponents responded by denying that Jesus had been raised from the dead. And since that time, again, since the very first Easter Sunday, opponents of Jesus and skeptics have challenged the historical veracity of the resurrection. So 2,000 years removed from the resurrection, how do we know what actually happened? I mean, we weren't there ourselves, right? We're, we're basing our belief, our opinion, on the testimony of eyewitnesses who were there. How can we be sure that the resurrection actually happened? How can we be confident that the New Testament is telling us the truth about the resurrection. I want to answer that question by posing or, or presenting the four main challenges to the resurrection that have been raised throughout history because I think the gospel speaks clearly to each of those challenges. 
So first, challenge number one, the wrong tomb theory. Opponents argue that the reason why the women discovered an empty tomb is because they visited the wrong tomb. The tomb they visited was empty, sure, but they went to the wrong tomb. And if they had gone to the right tomb, they would have discovered Jesus' body lying there, right where it was buried. We can respond to this challenge in two ways. First, it is highly unlikely that the women visited the wrong tomb. If you look back at chapter 15, verse 47, notice what Mark tells us. It's the, the way that he ends, really, the story of the crucifixion with the burial to not only remind us that Jesus was dead, but that he also was entombed. And we see in verse 47 that Mary Magdalene and Mary the mother of Joseph, two of the women who are named in verse 1 of chapter 16, who witnessed the resurrection, they saw where he was laid. And the word saw means to observe or to watch closely. In other words, they knew where they were going. In fact, they were even concerned about the stone. Remember that in verse 3, who's going to roll the stone away from us? They knew the location of the tomb. The exhortation of the angel in verse 6 to see the place where they laid him indicates their familiarity with the tomb. So the tomb they visited was the place they expected Jesus' body to be lying so that they could anoint him with oils and spices on that Sunday morning. Well, second, let's accept their... Um, criticism for a moment, the skeptic's criticism challenge for a moment. And let's assume that the women had indeed gone to the wrong tomb. It's a pure mistake. They went to the wrong tomb. The tomb was empty, but you know what? It was the wrong tomb. You know how they could easily solve that problem? Other people knew where Jesus was laid. They could take them to the right tomb and show them where the body was. But no one does that. No one suggests they go to the right tomb if they were at the wrong tomb, which indicates to us that the women were not at the wrong tomb, they were at the right tomb. And if they were at the right tomb, which the gospel says they were, and the body was missing, and the angel told them that Jesus had been raised from the dead, then Jesus must have been raised from the dead. Challenge number two, the stolen body theory. Some opponents claim that Jesus' body was stolen, presumably by his disciples so that it gave the appearance of a resurrection. In fact, the Jewish leaders were particularly concerned about this particular possibility. Back in Matthew 26, verse 64, they requested that Pilate post guards at the tomb because they had heard that Jesus had been preaching and proclaiming that he would rise from the dead, and they were concerned that the disciples were going to go and steal his body to fake a resurrection. And so we can respond to this challenge of the stolen body theory in three ways. First, the stone itself. The stone was blocking the tomb's entrance, and that would have provided a significant impediment to stealing the body. We've already noted that the women were concerned about the stone, since it would have already been set in place and would have required sufficient manpower to move it, which, of course, they did not immediately have. And while men might have an easier time moving the stone, it would still be a significant obstacle to overcome, one that would have been labor-intensive and also time-consuming. It doesn't seem to fit the timeline for this to have occurred. Second, we see that the, that the, the Jewish leaders had requested that Pilate post guards at the tomb's entrance to ensure that the body would not be stolen. So either these guards were really bad at their jobs, Roman soldiers really bad at their jobs, highly unlikely, or something supernatural beyond their power had taken place, which is what Matthew records in his Gospel. 
In fact, the Jewish leaders bribed the guards and urged them to say that the disciples had stolen the body of Jesus. Matthew 28, verses 12 to 13. Third, we can say, well, where are the disciples? Where are the disciples? They've been AWOL since Jesus' arrest. Now, presumably, of course, because of all the, the chaos and all of their connections to Jesus, they were probably very fearful. They were probably in hiding, fearing for their lives. So going to the tomb and stealing the body would have exposed them to even greater risk than they already faced. And what would be the advantage for them to fake a resurrection of Jesus? What would be the advantage of them saying that Jesus had been raised if he hadn't? Right? Remember, they hadn't really understood the, the message that he was proclaiming. He had told them several times he was going to die and be raised. They didn't seem to understand that. They didn't seem to understand the general tenor of his ministry. Yes, they recognized him as the Messiah, but not in the way that Jesus meant. And so it appears that they were disappointed when their expectations of a political Messiah were unfulfilled in Jesus. So what do they gain by stealing the body and faking a resurrection? It would be more likely that they would either have given up hope and maybe even sought a new Messiah who could, who could promise them what they were looking for. In fact, we also notice Mark's Gospel ends here in verse 8, but we have noticed in the other Gospels that the disciples, when they do discover that Jesus has been raised, that they are just as surprised as the women were. When the women come to tell Peter and the other disciples, they were surprised themselves at this news. So they also evidently forgot Jesus' own prediction that he would be raised from the dead. So that's the, stolen, that's the stolen body theory. Number three, challenge number three, the spiritual resurrection theory. Some critics claim that the resurrection was spiritual in nature and not bodily in nature. They charge that Jesus' disciples found hope and joy and peace and Jesus' teaching and ministry and that they allowed that spirit to live on in themselves. In other words, according to this theory, Jesus is just like any other worldly religious leader, right? Whose spirit lives on in the memory of their teachings. And again, we can respond to that in two ways. First, the, this explanation discounts all the evidence of the narrative. Nothing in the gospel accounts leads us to believe that the resurrection was merely spiritual or should be understood only as spiritual in nature. In fact, just the opposite. The gospels argue for a bodily resurrection of Jesus. Remember the story of Thomas in John chapter 20. When Thomas doubted the eyewitness testimony of his fellow disciples. Remember that Jesus appeared to the disciples Easter Sunday night. Thomas was not there. And when they told Thomas that Jesus had been raised, that they had seen him, Thomas doubted, right? He doubted that. In fact, he countered to them. He said, unless I see in his hands the mark of the, of the nails and place my finger into the mark of the nails and place my hand into his side, I will never believe. So when Jesus appears to them the following week and Thomas is present, what does Jesus say to Thomas? He says, put your finger here and see my hands and put your hand and place it in my side. Do not disbelieve, but believe. What is Jesus doing? Jesus is proving to Thomas that he has been raised bodily from the dead. Furthermore, in nearly every post-resurrection appearance, Jesus acted as an embodied person would. In fact, one of the things that's most interesting is that every time the post-resurrection Jesus appears in the Gospels, he is usually eating. He is hungry. 
He is asking for food. He is eating with his disciples. Eating is a corporeal activity. It's a bodily activity. His body desires food. His body wants food. He's able to do the bodily function of eating food. And so his resurrection must be bodily. The second response to this spiritual resurrection theory is that the women's response to the news of Jesus' resurrection flies in the face of this challenge. Again, look at how the women reacted in verse 8. They fled from the tomb. They were trembling and astonished. They, had not, they said nothing to anyone because they were afraid. At least they didn't say anything initially to anyone because fear had overwhelmed them. Overwhelmed them. That's not the hope and joy and peace and love that a spiritually resurrected Jesus would offer to somebody, right? If you're, if you're just taking hope in the fact that Jesus was raised spiritually, these women aren't responding to that message appropriately. The fourth challenge, final challenge, is the mere fabrication theory. There are some skeptics who argue that the early church simply made up the account of Jesus' resurrection as a way to honor Jesus and to see his teachings survive. But we can respond to this challenge in three ways. First, there are too many historical eyewitness details included in the narrative to dismiss, not just in Mark's, but in all four Gospels. For example, in verse 5, Mark notes that the angel was sitting on the right side inside the tomb. That is not a detail to note unless it actually happened and someone witnessed it. Secondly, the first eyewitnesses to the resurrection were women. And this is, this is a big deal. This is probably the coup de grace of all the evidences. Remember that at this time, in Jewish culture, women were by and large disregarded and treated as second class. A woman's testimony was not allowable in courts of law since they were not considered to be credible or trustworthy witnesses. And yet, who were the first witnesses of the resurrection? It was the women. It was the women. In fact, notice that in Mark 16, verse 1, Mark names the women. And that is quite unusual for Mark to name women in his gospel. Mark references 12 women throughout his entire gospel. And only five of them are named. Herodias, the wife of Herod Antipas, presumably because she was a famous woman. Mary, the mother of Jesus, but she's only named once by her proper name. Mary Magdalene, Mary the mother of James and Joseph and Salome. Now, if we exclude those last three, the ones who appeared at the empty tomb, that leaves only two of nine women who are identified by their names. And even then, Mary is usually referred to as the mother of Jesus in the gospel. She's only identified by her proper name once. And yet Mark names these women here at the tomb, all three of them, Mary Magdalene, Mary the mother of James, and Salome. But notice that if we were to read this without chapter numbers and verse numbers, that Mark names them not just once, but he names them three times in a short span of time. Back in chapter 15, verse 41, they are named because they are witnesses to the crucifixion. And again in verse 47, they are named again because they are witnesses to the burial. And again in 16, verse 1, they are named because they are witnesses to the resurrection. And in fact, they are the main witnesses to the resurrection. In fact, for Mark, they are the only witnesses to the resurrection. Because he doesn't record any other witnesses in his gospel. In other words, the, the testimony of the resurrection hangs upon their word. 
the basis for the resurrection hangs upon the word of the women, their testimony, their eyewitness testimony. James Edwards in his commentary on the Gospel of Mark about this passage has written, has written, the witness of these women endows the resurrection narratives with the highest degree of probability. Unless women were actually present at the tomb, the early church would scarcely have placed them there since Judaism did not accept the testimony of women. And that is a powerful, powerful piece of evidence. The third piece of evidence that we can offer here for the mere fabrication theory is, is the disciples themselves. Look at their lives. Look at the radical transformation that takes place in them. Before Jesus' death on the cross, the disciples misunderstood the mission and ministry of Jesus. Though they revered him and followed him, they reckoned him to be a Messiah who would deliver them from the clutches of Rome. Rome's imperial power, Rome's imperial oppression. The Jews were, were languishing under Rome's power. They believed that Jesus was going to be the political force that would lead the revolution to cast off Rome's power and to usher in the, the restored Davidic Empire, an independent, powerful Israel once again. And so when Jesus revealed to them that he would be rejected and mocked and beaten and crucified, they rebuked him. When Jesus prophesied that, he would, that they would deny him and abandon him in the final hours of his life, they chastised him. When he was arrested, they fled from him. And even after his resurrection, they misunderstood the nature of his kingdom. Before he ascended into heaven, their last question, Lord, is it now, is now the time you'll restore the kingdom to Israel? Even there at that moment, they still did not have a clear sense of what Jesus was about. But when Jesus ascended into heaven and the Holy Spirit descended upon them, they were radically transformed. Peter spoke the truth about Jesus' resurrection and power so that 3,000 believed the gospel on that very day. When arrested and rebuked by the authorities, the disciples claimed that they could only tell the things that they had witnessed with their own eyes. When ordered not to preach, they could not stop preaching the resurrection. These were not the same men that we read about in the Gospels. I mean, they were, but they're completely different. In fact, of the 11 original disciples, 10 died deaths of martyrs, and the 11th perished in exile. Chuck Colson, who was an advisor to President Nixon during his time, uh, during his presidency, he compared his Watergate experience to the disciples' experience after the resurrection. And he said this, he said, I know the resurrection is a fact and Watergate proved it to me. How? Because 12 men testified they had seen Jesus raised from the dead. Then they proclaimed that truth for 40 years, never once denying it. Everyone was beaten, tortured, stoned, and put in prison. They would not have endured it if it weren't true. Watergate embroiled 12 of the most powerful men in the world, and they couldn't keep a lie for three weeks. You're telling me 12 apostles could keep a lie for 40 years? It's absolutely impossible. We have much proof, much evidence for the resurrection of Jesus. So what? Okay, we read the story. We say it happened. It occurred in history. It's a historical event. So what? Let's get to the third question. Why is the, necess why is the resurrection necessary for the Christian faith. And we could do a whole sermon on this. Maybe next year I will. 
Why is it necessary for the Christian faith? Let me give you a couple of just really quick bullet points here. Essentially, the resurrection of Jesus Christ is, is significant. It's important. It's crucial. Because it communicates good news. The resurrection of Jesus Christ communicates good news. How does it communicate good news? What is the good news it communicates? Let me give you two things. First, the resurrection proves that Christ defeated death. The resurrection proves that Christ defeated death. The greatest fear among men has always been death. But since Adam and Eve sinned in the Garden of Eden, that sorry curse of death has hung like a pall over the life of every human being. Our lives will all end in this sad way. It is our destiny to die. And so if there were a way to avoid death or to overcome death, that would be good news. Think for a moment if you've been diagnosed with a terminal illness, terminal cancer, right? And all hope is lost. You know you're going to die. And all of a sudden someone comes to you and says, hey, there's a new experimental treatment that will work to cure your cancer. Would that not be good news for you? That there's a way to escape death temporarily to give you more years to your life? That would be astounding news. And so also here, the news that someone has, uh, that has overcome death is good news for us, that we can avoid death, that we can overcome death. The resurrection of Jesus screams good news because the curse and power of death has finally been defeated. Again, resurrections from the dead don't just happen. It is abnormal to our human condition. But Jesus' resurrection puts an end to death. And that's good news. 1 Corinthians 15, Paul writes in verse 54 to 57, Death is swallowed up in victory. O death, where is your victory? O death, where is your sting? The sting of death is sin, and the power of sin is the law. But thanks be to God, who gives us the victory through our Lord Jesus Christ. Why? Because Christ was raised from the dead. Secondly, the resurrection validates the work of Christ on the cross. The resurrection validates the work of Christ on the cross. In other words, the resurrection declares that God is satisfied with the death of Jesus. Remember that Jesus' death was for a purpose. His death was to atone for our sins. On the cross, as we we mentioned or we, we, we read from the scriptures on Friday night, Jesus on the cross bore our sins. In other words, when Jesus died on the cross, our sins were placed upon him. Our sins were imputed to him. Our sins were counted as if they were his own. They weren't his own, but they were, they were ours that were counted as his. God treated Jesus like he would treat a sinner. He treated Jesus like he promised to treat us because of our sins. And on the cross, Jesus suffered the wrath of God for our sins. Jesus paid the penalty that our sins required. So, on the cross, God's wrath was propitiated. It was satisfied. It was appeased. In other words, we, if we are in Christ, if we are trusting in Jesus Christ for salvation, we have the hope, we can trust and believe that God will never pour His wrath out upon us for our sins. Because Jesus paid the price fully. And how do we know that Jesus' sacrifice does the job? How do we know that there's not another way? How do we know that Jesus' sacrifice was sufficient? God raised him from the dead. That was the display that God accepted that sacrifice. 
Again, remember that Jesus should never have died. He had no sin. And so if the wages of sin is death, we might look at the cross and say, well, Jesus was a sinner, maybe the consummate sinner. Maybe the, the sinner par excellence. But Jesus was undeserving of death. And so God raised him to vindicate him, to vindicate his perfect righteousness and to show that he accepted Christ's sacrificial work. He raised Christ from the dead to vanquish all his enemies. Paul writes in Romans chapter 4 verse 25 that he, Christ, was delivered up for our trespasses and raised for our justification. When we think of the gospel, we typically think of the cross, don't we? When we preach the gospel, we talk about Christ's sacrifice, his shed blood, the forgiveness of sins. And don't get me wrong, the cross is essential because without it there is no forgiveness of sins. But after Pentecost, if you look to the book of Acts and you look and see what the disciples were, were mostly preaching, what were they publicly declaring, what was the centerpiece of the message, it was always the resurrection of the dead, the resurrection of Christ from the dead. They identified the resurrection as the good news because it validated the cross and it made a radical statement about what God had done to destroy sin and death. It is the resurrection that breaks the curse of death and allows us to stand justified before God. And so the women were surprised by the empty tomb. But we should not be. 2,000 years later, though scoffed by some and doubted by many, we have ample, overwhelming evidence to justify that the resurrection really happened. But the resurrection is more than a, than a historical fact. It is a living reality. The resurrection transformed the lives of Jesus' earliest followers. And it is still transforming our lives today. It is good news that should cause us to celebrate and rejoice. And it is the power that sustains us to follow Christ in the present. It is the hope that fuels our longing for an eternal future with God. But the resurrection not only sustains us individually, it is the source of our life corporately, as the body of Christ, as the local church. From very early on, the church gathered not yearly on Easter, but weekly on Sunday, the first day of the week, the day of the resurrection. Why? To remember the good news that saved them and that bound them together as a body. We find our identity and our joy in the announcement of the gospel. And that gospel is this, that Jesus Christ was raised from the dead. We gather weekly to remember and to proclaim this good news to ourselves so that we might keep our eyes fixed on Jesus, the author and perfecter of our faith. The good news of the resurrection is earth-shattering and life-altering. Brothers and sisters, how can we not be continually surprised by the empty tomb? That glorious, mysterious, incomprehensible reality should not cause us to quake as it did the women initially, but it should overwhelm us with joy and assurance and hope as it did them eventually. And it should lead us to go and to tell others what we have come to know by God's word, that Jesus is alive. And that changes everything about today. Friend, if you are worshiping with us this morning and you're not a Christian, I pray that you too will be surprised by the empty tomb. Not surprised by curiosity or fascination, 
but surprised to learn what God has done for you. God has done a work of salvation for you through Jesus Christ. See him humiliated on the cross for your sin so that you might know the penalty of your sin has been forgiven and that you can be reconciled to God, your creator, and then see him in resurrected glory as Savior, as Christ, and as Lord. Repent of your sins and trust in Christ and be surprised at the love that he has shown to you by this good news. Let's pray together. Lord, we are thankful for your word and we are thankful for this news, the gospel news that Christ has been raised from the dead. I pray, Lord, that that would not just simply be a mere uh, factoid that we remember in our minds, but Lord, it would be a life-transforming truth that dwells deep in our hearts and that transforms our daily living so that we no longer walk in the ways of our sins of our past, Lord, but that we would walk in the new way of life, the way of the resurrection, the way of glory, the way of hope, the way of righteousness. We are grateful for what you have done for us in Jesus Christ. And we are grateful that you are working out in us the sanctification that, that, all, that he has brought to us in his death and resurrection. And we're thankful that you're conforming us to his image, that we are becoming more and more like him. I pray, Lord, that you would continue that work in us. And I pray that you would continue to bear within us, Lord, a deep longing for that day when we too, even though we may die in this life, will also be raised like him into glory and that forever we will be with the Lord. We thank you, Lord, for this message of good news. We pray you'd help us to walk in it. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen.